Good to see you all, and uh, so glad to be with you as we're studying God's Word, working our way through this series in Genesis. We're already in chapter 5 this morning. You can start turning with me while I continue, and wondering, you see the title there, A Long Walk. I'm wondering how many of you can kind of think through your early years. You may not have enjoyed it, but as you've gotten a little bit older, you enjoy going for a nice walk. Anybody say you like that? Enjoy, whether it's with a friend, whether it's a guest that's out of town, just like just getting outside and breathing in the fresh air. I've grown to love a nice walk, whether it's with my wife or kids after dinner or whatever it is. A, a walk is refreshing. I think of that in terms, but I'm wondering in the group here, how many of you have ever started a walk that you thought was going to be a short walk? And it ended up being a really long walk. Like, you had no guess. Can you bring to mind one of those experiences where you were like, man, I didn't know that was going to be near as far as it ended up being. I had that a few weeks ago. I was down in Torrance and getting some work done on our car. And I had brought along, knowing that it was going to be a long day, I brought along, we have one of those electric scooters, kind of like the bird things that you see around. And I went, I was like, man, I can go all over the place. This thing has a great distance radius. But I was about seven miles out and noticed that on the the little gauge there started just like dropping quickly, like how much power is still left in this. And I'm checking and I'm looking at my map and I'm like, holy smokes, I've got a long walk back. I got it to limp another like mile or so, but I was about six miles out. And it's kind of one of those crossroads where I could either be bitter about it or just like enjoy the moment. And so I chose to be bitter about it. And, uh, <laughs> and so, and so uh, on that long walk back, in all honesty, though, I started finding, I was like, man, this is actually refreshing. It's like, it's like nice to be outside. To be, you do some of your best thinking, I would propose, on thoughts. And I started coming up with this analogy, not life is like a box of chocolates, but life is a little bit more like a long walk. You know, it's a little bit further than you thought, but it's not quite as long. Once you get to the closer to the end, you're like, whoa, it's already done. What in the world's going on here? There's lots of choices along the way. Who's walking with you? Lots of decisions to make what path you go on. We could go lots of different directions. Well, this section of scripture, I think, gives us some really wonderful clues to understand the walk that we're all on. The walk that we're all endeavoring on is a part of a human experience. And so I think there's some wonderful lessons in our text this morning about this long walk that we're on. Just a reminder, though, where we've been, we're kind of walking through the story of the beginning of mankind. And last week, we had a chance to see Cain and Abel. That piece didn't go real well. But at the end of the passage, you remember, end of chapter four, we're introduced to another line through Adam and Eve by the name of a gentleman by the name of Seth, who ultimately his family line will lead to the coming of the Messiah. So this section that we're in, chapter five, is really the account from Adam all the way to Noah, the account of the human history between those two. And at first glance, I was like, oh, this seems a little bit Uh, a little bit boring. But the more I got into it, I was trusting and clinging to God's promise in 2 Timothy 3, 16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so we're going to continue in this story. And there's not a shortage of adventures that will go on in this walk that we're on here today. Just a little bit of a backdrop, though, for this. People lived, you're about to see, a lot longer than they live now. 
Lots of accounts of people's lives that, oh, they're 900 years old. Can you imagine? Like, I get worn out at, already at 45, you know, like this idea of 900. And this is where, this is typically just the account of the firstborn son. So there's lots of life that's happening in this account that's outside of that. And you think about how many kids there's the potential of having before somebody, like Adrian and I have been married 20 years now. We've got three kids to show for it. Imagine if you had 900 years, a lack of contraception, you know what I mean? Like, a, like you imagine I was do, doing the math, even at the rate that we're at, we'd have 135 kids in our lifetime. So God's using this time period to expand the territory of people existing here. Sorry for that detour. But either way, end of chapter 4, we're told that then man began to call upon the name of the Lord. It seemed like it was a good sign, but we're about to see not all men did. Let me pray before we start in verse 1. Lord Jesus, we invite you to speak to us through this text right now. We believe that by us diligently coming here and digging in, that you have something for us. It's not for the person down the row, it's for us. And so we ask specifically that your spirit would meet us exactly where we're at. We're inviting that and counting on that now. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. So chapter five, a long walk starts in verse one. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man. When they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. All right, we'll stop there for a moment. What I wanted to draw your attention to is kind of the original design. God made man, and we're told that he made man in his image. In his image, he created man and woman. That was the initial stamp, if you will. But you notice a little bit of a difference, and you can see with the title of this section starts with a sin nature. All of a sudden, with the introduction of Seth, whose image does it say that Seth is made in? He's made in the image of Adam. All of a sudden, it's passing down from one generation. It still represents in the image of God, but it's a little bit more of a tainted image as it works its way down the generations. And you're about to see that is definitely true in this collection or account of mankind. I don't know if any of you grew up in youth groups, but they play all kinds of silly games and crazy stuff that whatever junior high pastor or high school pastor comes up with. One of the ones I remember is called the telephone game. Anybody remember this? The telephone game, this is how the telephone game works. You have a lineup of kids and you start by whispering something into the first person's ear. They pass that message to the next person, right? Then the next person, next. Anybody ever done this before? What happens by the time it gets to the end of the row? Nobody knows what they're saying. Like, it's completely tainted. In fact, you can almost often, and it's kind of the comedy of the game, you can almost typically know that whatever they're saying by the end, you're like, that doesn't look at all like the beginning. And I think of that as kind of the idea here. We're introduced to generational sin. Now you not just represent or a reflection of God, but you're also a reflection of your dad and your dad's dad and your mom's mom and your 
and so on and so forth, that's a tainted image gets passed down and it helps us in this walk that we're on make sense out of where people are at. Helps us make sense when you're like, oh, that's why they're like that because they're in the image of their dad and their dad's dad and their mom and so on and so forth. It's important as we're connecting the dots and understanding this walk that we're on is it starts with a sin nature. Continuing verse 6, it says, When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Verses 12 through 20. It's kind of a repeat of this. Basically, this is the pattern. You're getting an introduction to a weird name, uh, the fact that they had lots of kids, and then it ends with the same statement every single time. Who can tell me what that statement is? And he died. The one guarantee in this life. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning, right? You see it there as a guaranteed finish line of this race. Every single one of us has that reality. And it's what was warned to Adam and Eve. If you partake of this tree, surely you will die. Imagine Adam and Eve at first when they eat it and they're like, hey, I'm still all right. Didn't realize that they had died spiritually and the progression towards ultimate physical death had then begun. For them, this is the reality. It's living it. It's playing itself out in one generation after another. It's the same outcome. Romans 5, 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is the introduction of death. That was introduced by sin. It wasn't part of God's initial design, his initial plan. It was our choice, part of our rebellious act, the outcome being death. Like this quote, I'm not sure where it came from, but I like this. Death is a horrible reminder. We've wronged a holy God and will someday stand before him. It's a horrible reminder that we've wronged him and someday we'll give an account before him. It's a guarantee on everyone's calendar. We just don't know when that calendar comes to conclusion. I was reading this week that scholars in the Middle Ages, they typically on their desk or on their counter or where their workspace, they would typically have a skull that was there as a reminder. It was actually called memento mori, which means reminder of death. You're like, whoo, that's pretty intense. Can you imagine the next time somebody stops in your office and they're like, ooh, what's the skull doing there? <laughs> Not just Halloween, but here's the idea is that it can be a catalyst or something that propels us towards good stuff. The reminder that, man, wait a second, I only have limited days here. This is a short period of time. It can either be seen as something miserable or something that gives us motivation and compels us to action. Read this story from the Daily Bread. Anybody grow up reading the Daily Bread? Some of us still are blessed by that often. I like this one. Years ago in London, a merchant named Henry Goodyear scoffed at the Bible. But one Sunday, just to please his niece, he went to church. The young lady was greatly disappointed when she learned that the pastor's message was based on Genesis 5. 
As she listened to the boring list of names being read, she wondered why God had permitted the pastor to pick that text on the day her uncle came to church. As they walked home, little did she know that every step of her uncle's feet and every beat of his heart seemed to repeat the gloomy refrain, and he died, and he died. The next day, Goodyear could not concentrate on his work. That night, he searched for a family Bible and read over those words again, and he died, and he died. Goodyear thought, now I'm living, but someday I must die, and then where will I spend eternity? That very night, he asked the Lord Jesus to forgive him and make him a child. Reminder of how this end line, this guaranteed finish line, can be a, a motivator to think about eternal things, to think about where we're going to spend the next billion years. Can you imagine that? Where we're going to spend eternity is determined by the choices we make here and now. Continue, so it has a guaranteed finish line. That's maybe not news to some of you. And also a choice with whom we walk. We're picking back up in verse 21 after a lot of those repeats. It says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. That's a fun name. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, listen to this statement, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. All right, now I'm thinking that upon reading that, you're seeing what the break is in the pattern. What's the break in the pattern? Shorter life, but also what happens to Enoch? He's taken up. He kind of skipped everybody else, and he died, and he died. And the guy's like, no, I'll take that one. I'll take that one. Wait, wait a second. What's different about this guy? What do we learn about him? It's not a lot said about him. It just says a few simple words. It says that he walked with God. He walked with God. Can you imagine out of the summary of, of your so 365 years, the one thing as you're breaking it down, the only thing that was actually noteworthy about this guy was what? that he made the choice to walk with God. When we clear away all the peripheral stuff, all the crazy stuff that our world tells us is so important, is so critical, you must do this, what's the thing that's going to matter that's going to last past into eternity, whether or not we walked with God? I love this picture. Not a lot said about him, but we do know that he, he understood something. God created man for the enjoyment of a walking relationship that involved companionship, dialogue, intimacy, joint decision-making, mutual delight, and a shared dominion over this world. He partook in that. He leaned into what Adam and Eve had started. Remember when it said that they walked with God in the cool of the garden, in the cool of the afternoon? That his, Enoch's like, I want that too. I want that too. What's fascinating about this is this falls on the seventh generation of man. This falls on Seth's side, seven generations in. So seven generations of calling on the Lord, and what does it say about him? It says that he walked with the Lord. Seven generations in on the other side of Cain, who falls in that number seven. Remember last week, a guy named Lamech. Lamech was known for what? 
killing somebody, then bragging about it to his wives. Do you remember that last week? Both of them being the seventh generation, but choosing what chain they would be in the link. Choosing what chain, who they would walk with on this journey. You see every single one of us, all of us are part of some kind of a chain, a generational chain, and you get to choose whether or not you're going to be the continuation of the chain if somebody's following the Lord prior to you, whether or not you're going to be the first, the start of a generation following Jesus, or the scary one, or maybe you're going to be the last in a generation of following. But here we see that Enoch was making the decision to walk with God and setting the pace for generations to come You wonder why God had this unique experience where he says, I'm going to just take him to be present with me. I would suggest that he's emphasizing a point that I would love each one of us to take home with us today is that the point is this. God says, I love to walk with man. I love to walk with man. I want that to be celebrated every single time this is read from here forward. I love to walk with man. In fact, tell the person right next to you right now, say, he loves to walk with you. That's good news for some people here this morning. He loves to walk with man. That's his desire. That's his plan. That's his initial design for mankind. And Enoch leans into it, says in his story, he goes on and he still does the family thing. He still has the kids, his firstborn. What's the name of his firstborn? Methuselah. That's just a fun name to say. Methuselah, you might not know this, is the longest living, known living person in history. So who, who didn't know that already? I think most of us already knew that. Uh, Methuselah, 969 years. That's a lot of years. Here's something interesting about Methuselah. You know how names mean a lot in the Bible? Guess what Methuselah's name actually meant? Methuselah means when he is dead, it shall come. When he is dead, it shall come. It doesn't say what's to come. What's interesting is when you actually do the math and you start adding up each of these generations and all the years and lifespans, guess what year he ends up dying at 969? The year of the flood. Can you imagine you have a neighbor that's really, you're like, man, that's the old, really old guy, 969 years. Whenever he gets a cough, and you know what his name means, whenever he gets a cough, you're like, guys, somebody quick, get something for him. You know, take care of this guy. We don't, want, we don't want to know what's to come, but they do ultimately find that out. And what I find is beautiful is that our God, this is, as you learn about his character, this is a picture of his patience with us. The person that lived the very longest, he's like, oh man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna delay the consequences. I'm gonna delay the consequences. Delay them, delay them, delay them. 969 years. Second Peter 3.9 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach Repentance. His longing was for more and more people to follow Enoch and say, I just want to come back. I want to call on the name of the Lord and I want to walk with him. That's what he chose to do here. Continuing in verse 28, see little glimpses of relief along the way. It says, when Lamech lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. Maybe you've heard of that guy before. 
saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. So first introduction of Noah, the name Noah actually sounds like the Hebrew word used for comfort. And so the author even pointing to that idea that they saw him as a potential source of comfort by the godly life that he would live in extending mankind's existence. But when you think about Noah as he related with the culture, do you think the culture would have thought of him as a source of comfort? Not so much, right? He was the one that kept saying that judgment's coming, judgment's coming, judgment's coming. And for the people to actually see that what he was offering was a source of comfort would have been completely absurd. Here's the thing that we learn about God's comfort. Maybe some of us that have lived a little bit longer. Sometimes it doesn't come in the form that we thought it would come in at all. Anybody attest to that? His comfort that you're like, wow, I didn't know that was going to be the source of comfort. I loved hearing this story this week. I don't know if some of you uh, might know Tim and Gia Bowen and their daughter Madison. Uh, they're here even in the service uh, today, but it's kind of neat hearing their story. Madison had some health issues this past winter and spent an extended time in the hospital. And good news is that she's recovered fully from that. We're praising the Lord for her. I think she's still on a, on a journey, but still God's provision and care has been uh, unbelievable in their life. But one of the things on the other side of their hospital visit is it's the time of reckoning comes when what? The bills come, right? Her sharing the story with me and was saying, man, it was like after all the insurance coverage and all that, it was 50 plus thousand dollars for this time spent in the hospital. And kind of for a young family, that's kind of a game changer, right? And so at one point, she heard me telling a story in a sermon where I had written a letter to the hospital asking for forgiveness of a loan. And she's like, do you mind? Do you mind just taking some time and just writing a letter to the hospital and see what they might do? And so I pulled out my best writing, you know, and trying to make appeals about how they're going to wreck her life you know, just subtle things like that, and tried to come up with a heartfelt appeal to the hospital. And the hospital wrote back, and it was kind of more of a form letter, if you're wanting a financial assistance, here's the forms to fill out. I get that request back, and I was just like, oh, man, dead end. You know, like totally, like that was like the, stand, the company line, if you will. And so I told G, I'm like, I'm sorry about this. And she, she took that, and unbeknownst to me as the, your pastor of faith was giving up, she filled out all the forms, filled it out, and just in the last, was it one week, last two weeks, uh, gets this, this letter in the mail, and it's hard to read on the, the screen there, but your request for uncompensated services has been approved for 100% assistance. How cool, how cool is that? Where it didn't come in the version that we thought it might come in. It wasn't the comfort package that I was hoping for, but all of a sudden our God worked and said, hey, this might not look the way it looks. This, this big boat that this random guy's making might not seem like a rescue when it's never rained, but his comfort is there if we have eyes to see it, if we'll actually lean in. Maybe that comfort might be getting back, aligning our life with God's word, aligning our life with things that you know are the parameters that he's put in place for you. Maybe that's the source of comfort he wants to provide. 
Either way, I love our God and the way he operates and chooses to provide comfort here. Continuing in the text as we're looking at this kind of progression, if you will, of mankind between these two men, Seth and Noah. It says, after Noah was 500 years old, I'm in verse 32, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Can you imagine having kids at 500? But anyway, when man began to multiply on the face of the land, this is where it gets a little weird. Check this out. Stay focused. It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. All right, so let me give a little walkthrough, you know, a light section of scripture there. So a couple things to learn about this. You might, if you're reading that, you might be like, what's the big deal? I don't really get it. But here's the thing to point out. So this generation or this grouping is really a summary of the degradation that God will get to the very end of his rope where he's like, all right, I'm done with this. And what's actually happening here is you're introduced to the Nephilim, which there's much debate about this race, but the word Nephilim actually means to fall. And when it uses the term sons of God, it's identified elsewhere in scripture exclusively as fallen angels. So basically what you have is fallen angels picking and choosing what wives they want to take for themselves. Now, we don't understand fully how this worked, whether or not all fallen angels, you know that in the account of a third of the angels fell along with Lucifer, came down to earth. We don't know if they all had physical form or whether they took possession of fallen men. We don't know exactly, but either way, most would agree, theologians would agree that this was an attempt to pollute the line that would ultimately lead to Jesus Christ. When you're going into Halloween week, you don't have to wonder whether there's any evil around us. This was Satan heavily at work trying to pollute things, trying to damage things. And it caused God's immediate response, all right, we're moving life to 120-year max. Anybody know somebody 121? I didn't think so. This is the idea. God put a parameter on lifespan starting at this point and recognizing that there's an enemy working behind the scenes trying to take us out, trying to ruin what God is doing. For us in our own reality, post-flood, on the other side of flood, most would agree that they didn't survive the flood, Post-flood, you have still an enemy at work and forced to recognize that on our walk, our long walk, our journey, life, whatever you want to call it, you have forces at work behind the scenes, good and evil, wrestling with us in that decision whether or not we embrace or reject Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. So if you don't think there's something going on behind the scenes, you go back to Genesis 5 and get reminded of that here. Continuing in the story, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man 
was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We'll pause there, and that's where we'll end this morning in the section of Scripture, but a little explanation. Kind of, I, I told you, I kind of think in analogies, and one of the, the things I've noticed, I've tried over the years different kind of eating patterns. Anybody try a bunch of different diets and things over the years? Some things that work, some things that don't. I tried for a season. I had this mentality. I wonder if I just kind of eat whatever I want if my weight will settle in at a particular weight and just stay there, and I'll just be content with that weight. Anybody have this uh, thinking before? <laughs> I'll just settle in and just eat whatever, and wherever it lands, I'll just be content with that. That was kind of the thinking. Here's the problem with that. It doesn't settle in somewhere. It just keeps climbing and climbing, and you adjust, and you're less like, oh, I guess my new margin is this. I guess the new mar. oh, that's the new, rea like, what in the world, when you're like, how, pastor, does this relate? That's kind of the same thing, diets and sin, right? That's kind of the same idea here, this idea of the progression of sin. It wasn't something that ever stopped. Sin's not content until it fully has us until it has completely taken over. It's not something that you can kind of be like, oh, kind of dabble in that and kind of do one leg in, one leg out. You see exactly where it leads. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you see the depravity there? That's where sin takes us. When you head down that path, it goes to some really dark places. And so for us that think, oh, I can, I can manage this aspect in my life of sin. I can manage this. It only snowballs as we see here. And the thing that we have to understand as we're learning the heart of God, what does it say? That it actually breaks his heart. Use the expression, grieved him to his heart to think that we have a God that's indifferent or cosmic and massive. It's like, you see the personal side here, man, it grieves them. When we sin, when we wander, when we do our own thing, independent of his leadership, man, it breaks his heart, even to the point where the tension between his mercy and his justice is stretched so far. His justice demands that there's consequence for actions. His mercy is saying, oh, but I'm going to give him one more chance. Do you see the tension even in this? Oh, I regret that I made him. Now I'm going to just take out every single one of the birds, uh, bees, whatever. It's, it's all going. It's going out. I'm finished with this group of people, but then you see the tug of the mercy side. What do you see the very last statement? Ah, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Anybody else thankful for Noah? Like seriously, like, like this was, well, God was at the breaking point. He's like, I am done. Like this whole thing I'm bringing to a screeching halt, but he found favor with God because we have a God that's merciful and patient with us. That's long suffering. You should be so grateful for that. Just in summer, as I think about this, and I was uh, just kind of processing this on my own just the other night and just, and just spending some time praying about it, and it was just, man, God, I want to be 
the Enoch in this story. I want to be the one that leans in to that invitation that we have a God that loves to walk with us. Can you imagine if this little church in Agora Hills, if all of us took them at that invitation and said, you know what, I'm going to get more intentional. I'm going to be more purposeful and freeing myself from distraction and taking steps. We all know what a walk can look like. We've all had little tastes of it at some point if you're a Christ follower. And you know what needs to happen between where you're at now and getting on the other side of that walk. What if this next week we started taking steps? What if we even carved out time for going on a physical walk? What if you just said, all right, half an hour, Pastor Scott, I'll give you. I'll give you a half an hour. I'm going to walk with God and see what he might do with that. That's the invitation as we come out of this, because this is a long walk, but we choose who we walk with. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this account that holds to be true still today. So many parallel principles, the fact that we are born into a sin nature, that we have a limited timeline, that there's a finish line that we're racing towards. There's an invitation in that to call upon your name and to choose to lean into an ongoing walk. Really, when everything gets boiled down and it all gets taken away, it seems that that's the reoccurring theme of the one thing that matters for us personally. God, we thank you for your grace and your patience. And even as Methuselah demonstrates that you wait the very longest possible point before bringing consequence to our rejection of you grateful for the fact that you care about us, that you love us, and that you find something in us that's worth restoring, that's worth fighting for. You keep pursuing us. We praise you for that in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.